I'm wondering if you would track with me or agree with me on this thought, that it's extremely disturbing when somebody who has power or popularity or authority or influence, and they use it strictly for their own benefit, especially at the detriment of other people. Is that disturbing to you? Is it disturbing to you when they use the, their power, influence, and authority and they abuse it with those under their power, authority, or influence? For example, I think about the politician who might fill his or her coffers with people's money. The pastor who recently asked his congregation to pay another $35 million or give offerings of another $35 million for a second private jet. Or the sports star who lavishly abuses their newfound riches on themselves. The parent who leverages their kids or the power maybe they have in the relationship in an ugly divorce to spite the other spouse. Or the Olympic coach who does unspeakable things with his power or authority to young girls. It's extremely disturbing, wouldn't you agree? On the other hand, nothing is more inspiring than that person who takes their power, their popularity, their influence, their authority, and they use that for the benefit of others. When they say no to themselves, to be a blessing, to help, to support, to encourage others. Those stories inspire me, don't they inspire you? Recently, I was listening to a Dave Ramsey podcast and a single mother had called in. And she had done everything she can to give her two kids a better life than, than their trajectory was headed on. And so she got a job, she got a second job, she even got a third job. Sometimes having as much as four jobs at a time doing everything she can to help those kids have a chance at life. So much so that she wanted to pay for their college education. She was able to, by working hard, able to pay for it all to get them through college. She calls Dave Ramsey. She's in her 50s. And she hasn't been done much for herself because all she was trying to do was be a blessing to others, use her power, her position, her authority to be a blessing to others. And the story just was so inspiring. And, and, and Dave helped her and gave her some plans and, and, and whatnot. And, and, and you could see that, you know, as hard as she sacrificed, with more sacrifice, she might be able to get where she needs to be. But I just listened to that. I thought, that's what inspires. Say no to myself. Say yes to other people. You see, the reality is one of the greatest measures of our maturity, one of the greatest marks of our maturity is how you and I handle our popularity, our power, our influence, our authority. In other words, how we respond and how we act when we find, when it dawns on us, because some of us it doesn't always dawn on us, but when we finally realize, oh my goodness, I'm the most important person in the room. Or I'm the most powerful person in the room. Or, oh, I have something that other people don't have. And whether it's the boardroom or the classroom or the locker room, whether you're at work or whether you're at home with family, whatever it is, the measure of maturity is what you do with that. With that power, that influence, and that authority. Today what I want to do is I want to 
kind of run through some parts of David's life. We've been in this series with David. We wrap it up next week. And I want to look at some kind of points in his life that are going to set us up for kind of the final story with David that we're looking at this morning at least and to see what he does with his power, influence, and authority. And ultimately for that to lead us to what I believe God desires for each and every one of us here this morning. So, 1 Samuel chapter 16 is we're going to end up in a moment. Let me kind of set this up. David's in junior high, and the prophet Samuel comes to David's house. And he goes to Jesse, David's father, and he, he's basically like, hey, I'm, I, I'm here to, to do something. I've come to do a special sacrifice, and I want you to invite all your family to the special sacrifice. He doesn't tell him what his real mission was. It was a secret mission to anoint a new king. And he doesn't tell him about the secret mission or anybody about the secret mission because there already was a king. And if you're going to go around and anoint new kings when there's already a king, do you see how that's a problem? And so it's like, okay, this is a secret mission. He didn't tell him like really the, the real reason he's there. Verse 6, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. Now this is Jesse's oldest firstborn son. So what does Samuel think? He thinks what you or I would think. And he thought, look what it says, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. I mean, this was easy. It's the firstborn. It's the firstborn son. He had the look of a king. We can just kind of, you know, do the sacrifice and I can get on out of here and go home. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, and I want to say this together, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his what? Do not consider his appearance. Oh, what are you talking about? How do I do that? I mean, that's not easy to do, is it? We always consider people's appearance. In fact, when you meet somebody, what's the first thing you notice? Hopefully it's not their breath. (laughs) What's the first thing you notice? You notice their appearance, even in ancient times. It's the same way. And what happens is we tend to give preferential treatment even authority and influence to the good-looking, don't we? God says, he says, Samuel, do not consider his appearance, or let's say this word, his appearance or his what? Or his height. Back in 2012, there was an analysis of, done by this group about, of all of our presidential elections. And they found out something very interesting. They found out that the candidates that were taller than their opponents almost always receive more popular votes. Taller presidents were also more likely to be elected. Now, it's not just height. It's actually voice also. Did you know that? There's a researcher by the name of Casey Klofstad, and they took recordings of 796 candidates back in the 2012 House races here in the United States. And they analyzed the pitch of the voices of the candidates. The average pitch of the winning males and females overall was lower than the pitch of the losers. Isn't that interesting? Fascinating? So if you're a short, high-pitched person, don't go into politics. We absolutely consider appearance from looks to height to weight to even the pitch of our voice. But God says, Samuel, do not consider his appearance 
or his height, for I have rejected him. Why? Look at verse 6. Because God says, the Lord does not look at things that people look at. Which, God doesn't look at what you and I look at. We look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The Lord looks at the heart. It's what's in a person that makes a person. So, the seven sons come in. Samuel looks over all of them. None of them is the one. He's like, uh, am I missing something? Is there someone missing here? And then kind of in an awkward moment with Jesse, Samuel's like in verse 11, notice what it says. He says, are these all the sons you have? I mean, I've, I've told you to bring your whole family. And then Jesse kind of squeamishly kind of says, well, they're, they're still the youngest. Jesse answered, you know, like I didn't think about him. He's the youngest. He's out tending sheep, the Bible says. And so Samuel says, send for him. And when the little junior high shepherd boy shows up, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 12, the Lord said to Samuel, rise and anoint him. This is the what? This is the? This is the one. So Samuel walks over to David. He pours oil on his head. He gives him the blessing. Then he packs up his stuff and Samuel leaves. And the whole family's standing around like, what just happened? What just went on here? There's no indication that Samuel told Jesse what he anointed David to do. But here's what we do know. Since this time, since David was a young boy, David knew God had something special for him. He just received a blessing. He just received an anointing. Two years later, he goes off and he kills, you know, uh, the, uh, giant, uh, the giant Goliath, right? After that, he becomes an overnight sensation. He's welcomed into the family of Saul. And for the next seven years, David is in the good graces of King Saul. The next seven years. And and in fact, he even marries one of King Saul's daughters. He becomes best friends with Jonathan, who is one of the king's son, who who would eventually be the next king. And so for seven years, things are going incredible. Things are going great. But then, Saul feels threatened. And he gets jealous So he tries to kill David. And so then for the next eight years after that, David's on the run. He's out there with his band, you know, of merry men, right? And they're they're around in the hills and hiding out. They're trying to stay away from King Saul, all the while knowing he's been blessed by God. The anointing of God is upon him. God has chosen him for something special. He knows not what, but something special. And along the way, David learns some very important lessons. And perhaps the most important lesson that David learns in those eight years when he's running from Saul and he's out in the wilderness, you can call this, this is the David's wilderness years. In those wilderness years, David learns something that you and I would do well to learn. And he learned this, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's all about God's will, God's way, in God's time. It's not about me. It's about God's will, God's way, and God's time. For example, David had the opportunity to kill King Saul twice. And we've looked at both of those stories. In fact, now turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. Turn to 1 Samuel 24. We saw this a few weeks back. Pastor Derek talked about it. And then last week we saw 1 Samuel chapter 26, which we'll get to in a moment. You remember the story in 1 Samuel 24? Saul has to go to the bathroom. He wants to you know, have some privacy, so he goes into a cave. He doesn't know that David and his men are in the cave. So Saul's standing there, literally in his most vulnerable position possible. And then David's men say to him, to David in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 4, they say this, 
They're like, David, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you. Because David had told them, you know, hey guys, I want you to hang with me. I know we're out here. I know we're wandering. I know it's been tough. But listen, God has something special for me. Just hang with me because one day it's going to be different. There's something special God has for me. I'm not sure what it is, but hang with me. And notice what it says. This is the day that you've told us about. When God said, I will give your enemies into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. They're like, this is it. This is, this is the time you've been talking about. And then David says, no, no, no. I cannot and will not take matters into my own hands. And everybody's in Saul's army and everybody in David's ragtag group of mighty men, they know at that moment, in that situation, David could have taken Saul's life, but he chose not to. David says to Saul, 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 12, my hand's not going to touch you. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to take your life. Why? God's will, God's way, God's time. Then last week we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 26, if you've missed any of these weeks, I highly encourage you to go listen or watch online. Saul's with uh, 3,000 of his elite soldiers, and they have a tip on where David is. So they've been, you know, they kind of head out to where David is. It's time to hunker down for the evening. They all go to sleep. David says, I'm going to turn the tables a little bit. David and his friend Abishai, they go into the camp of Saul with his 3,000 soldiers in the middle of the night. They make it all the way to where, where Saul was sleeping, and everybody's sleeping. And Abishai looks at this moment and he looks at David and he says, listen, David, God has given Saul into your hands. Let's kill him right now. Let me do it. We can end this whole feud that's been going on for years. We don't have to run and hide anymore. I mean, God wills this, David. Remember, you've told us you are the Lord's anointed. David, listen, I'll do it right now. And when the army wakes up, They'll all embrace you as the king. Second, first Samuel, excuse me, first Samuel 26, verse 9. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? In other words, David said, I'm not going to do it. It's not right. It's not the right time. I can't do it. I refuse. This is so important that we learn this lesson, you and I, in our own lives. David was saying, I refuse to violate the will of God so that I can get a blessing of God. I refuse to violate a promise of God or a will of, the will of God so I can get a promise of God. I'm not going to violate the will of God because I'm in a situation where I think I deserve something. It's not about me. David refused to replace what God had put in place. He refused. Why? Because he trusted and that's the message for you and I. Will we trust? David trusted God's will, God's way, God's time, and he's inviting you and I to live a life where we trust God's will, God's way, in God's time. Well, eventually, King Saul and his son Jonathan actually die in battle. They were killed by the Philistines. And so David's tribe, David's, anybody know this? David's from the tribe of anybody know? Starts with a J, tribe of? Anybody? Tribe of Judah, right? He's from the tribe. Of, there's 12 tribes of Israel. He's from the tribe of Judah. And his tribe declares David. Now, when King Saul's dead, he, they declare him king. But, but King Saul has another son, Ishbosheth. 
And, and he's like, no, 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 I'm king. And he gets all the other tribes to join him and have him, declare him the king of Israel. So David, he was, in, uh, he was in Saul's good graces for seven years. Saul gets jealous. He's on the run for eight years. Now Saul's dead. And now he's the king of just the one tribe of Judah. Saul's other son, Ishbosheth, comes along and says, hey, I'm the king over all the other tribes. And now for the next seven years, there's constant battle going on. And the house, the house of David and the house of Saul are at battle with one another. And throughout this conflict, David essentially tries to stay out of the way. And people are continually coming to David and saying, man, you've got to claim what's yours. God has blessed you. God has anointed you. And over and over and over, David just kept saying, no, 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 it's not the way. It's not the way. It's God's will. God's way. God's timing. I'm not going to lay a hand if Ishbosheth says he's the anointed, uh, you know, the other tribes have anointed him king. I just need to stay out of his way. Well, two brothers decide, hey, we don't like this. And, and David's just kind of not getting it. We kind of need to give him a boost to give him a little encouragement. So they decide, basically what they're saying is forget God's will, God's way, and God's timing. So they decide to go sneak into Ishbosheth's house at night and murder him in his sleep. And they think they've done an amazing thing for David because now the last obstacle to David becoming king of the, over the entire nation of Israel, it's been removed. Now I want you to jump to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 4. And I want you to notice what it says. 2 Samuel chapter 4. And we're going to look at verse 8. 2 Samuel 4, verse 8, it says this. It says, They brought the head of Ishbosheth. To David at Hebron, and they said to the king, Here's the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy who tried to kill you. Now, in ancient times, you need to understand, it, it was full of beheadings. And why were be people beheaded constantly? Why, why was that happening? I mean, it's not something that happens much anymore. Why was that happening constantly? Very simple reason. You ready? Very, there's one reason why it was happening constantly they didn't have iPhones. Really? They didn't have a galaxy. They didn't have a Nikon or a Canon. Anybody know what I'm talking about? What didn't they have? They didn't have proof. They didn't have the ability to take a picture and show that the person was dead. And so since they didn't have a way to show that someone was dead, what do they have to do? They've got to cut off his head, right? The only way to prove that somebody was dead was to show up with their head. Hey, that rhymes. <laughs> only way to prove it. I mean, you could take the whole body, but who wants to do that? I've heard the hunters in our group, if you go hunt and you, you know, get a deer or something, you know, that's hard work, right? You've got to take it out. Imagine, you don't want to lug a whole body around. So the only way to prove that someone is dead is to show up with their yeah, look at that silly thing you'll remember it so they present the head to David and they're thinking man we're going to get a reward it's going to be good stuff we've removed the last obstacle from David becoming king of the entire 12 tribes of Israel they're excited look at 2nd Samuel chapter 4 verse 9 David answered the two guys Rechab and his brother Benah and David says this and this is <laughs> this is Pretty, pretty, if you can sense what's happening here, hopefully you'll get it. He says this, As surely as the Lord lives, 
who delivered me out of every trouble. Who delivered him out of every trouble? Who was it? The Lord. That's what David just said. Hey guys, I don't need your help. I don't need your interjection. I don't need you to get involved here. He says this, as soon as surely as the Lord lives, who delivered me out of every trouble. Verse 10, when someone told me that Saul is dead, so he's going to go back and tell another story. Hey, hey, you two guys, let me tell you another story. There was a point when Saul died, Saul and Jonathan died, and someone came to me, and he told me, he was excited to tell me that Saul was dead, and he thought he was bringing me good news. You know what I did? David said, I seized him, and I put him to death. And now the, the smile on these guys' face goes away. What? <laughs> Notice what David says. That was the reward I gave him for his news. Verse 11, how much more when wicked men, he's talking to these two guys, have killed an innocent man in his own house. And now they're just, you know, they're freaking out. Everybody else around's thinking, whoa, 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 time out, David. You're calling Ishbosheth uh, an innocent man? To which David would say, well, yeah, of course he's an innocent man. Yeah, but David, you're supposed to be the next king of all the tribes. But see, David understood something. What did David understand? God's will, God's way, God's time. God's will, God's way, in God's time. And David understood that. So now you have this situation. What happens next? Look at verse 12, 2 Samuel chapter 4. So David gave an order to his men, and they killed them, both of the brothers. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and they buried it. That's a sign of honor. So now what happens? Well, Ishbosheth is dead. The other tribes of Israel, they all of a sudden, the elders, the leadership, they all of a sudden have a change of heart about David, right? And after being a fugitive for eight years and then seven more years of civil war with the house of Saul and David going on, notice 2 Samuel chapter 5. Flip over one more page. 2 Samuel 5, verse 1. It says, all the tribes, not just Judah, but all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. So they go on. Notice what it says. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. Hey, David, we understand. David, we want you to know here, we know who had the influence the whole time. We know who had the power all the whole time. We know who deserved to be king. Notice what it goes on and says. And we knew that the Lord had said to you that, David, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become the ruler. See, it wasn't a mystery. Everybody knew David was destined to be king. But here's the whole point of the story, or part of the story, is they just didn't understand. They didn't understand why. They knew this, but they didn't understand David's actions. They didn't understand why he didn't seize power, why he didn't take power all these years. They knew he was supposed to be the king. But they couldn't figure it out. David, why not? You've had so many opportunities. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 3, when all the elders of Israel from all the 12 tribes. They had come to King David at Hebron. Why are they here? They're here to crown him, to hand him power, to give him all the authority. And in that moment, David's response to them handing him the power, the authority, he already had the influence. And in that moment, David is going to demonstrate for you and I an incredible example 
that's for all of us. He's going to demonstrate something in this moment that I think he learned in those eight desert wilderness years. I mean, I want you to think about this for a moment. He's been handed power. He's been handing authority. He has all the cards. His word is law. He is the influence. He's the most influential person in the room. And the Bible tells us that King David, what did he do? Did he kill him? No, he made a covenant with him there at Hebron. That was David saying, I'm going to make an agreement with you. I'm going to commit to you. I'm going to make some promises to you. David didn't need to do that. Certainly not. His word was law. He'd been mistreated for so long. He could have done anything he wanted to the leadership, to the elders. He could have ended all of their lives. He could have exacted vengeance on every single one of them. But instead, he made a covenant with all of the people. Why would he do that? Why would he be so gracious? Well, the next three words of the text tell us and explains everything we need to know. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 3, when all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, he made a covenant with them. He chose to be gracious with them in Hebron. And here's the three words, before the Lord. Before the Lord. Man, it's so powerful. Because in this moment, David doing this, giving this covenant before the Lord, David recognized publicly that he was going to choose to be a king who was under someone else's authority. The king was going to be under somebody else's authority. In this moment, he's saying, I'm letting everybody know I'm going to submit to somebody else's authority. I'm going to submit to God's law, which meant as a leader, he was actually submitting to the people. He was submitting to the people over which he would rule. He was submitting to the interest of the people. It was David's way of saying to everybody who was gathered, hey, I'm a king, and I have a lot of power, and I have a lot of influence, and I have a lot of authority, but I'm not the king. I'm a king, but not the king. I'm the boss, but not the boss. Verse 3, they anointed him king over Israel, and then David was 30 years old, and he reigned for 40 years. And he went through a lot of years, wilderness years, difficult years, challenging years. But God's will, God's way, God's time. Now next week, we're going to pick up the story from there and we're going to kind of run to the very end. It'll be the last message in the series. You really don't want to miss next week. It's a really important message for all of us. Really, really important. But here's the point. David waited many, many years for God to finally give him what he had promised him back when he was a young boy. And during that time of waiting, of trusting God, he learned an important lesson. He learned that any form, any form of leadership, power, influence, authority, any form of it, popularity, any form of it is always a stewardship. He learned that even him, a king, is accountable. The story teaches you and I that you and I are accountable. You and I are accountable. Now, how do I know that? Because while this is an incredible story, and it's a great lesson for us on using and leveraging whatever we have in any way, shape, or form, power, authority, influence, whatever it may be, popularity, whatever it may be, using that for the benefit of others, while it's it's an inspiring story, it's actually more than that if you're a Jesus follower. If you're a Christian here this morning, this story isn't just inspiring. You ready for this? It's actually required. 
Now, for those of you who've been at LifePoint for years and years and years and years, you might say, I think that's the first time I've ever heard Chris stand on stage and say the word required. So for those who are new, you're going to have to trust this. For those who've been here around a lot of years, you can go listen to all my sermons just to make sure. Correct me if I'm wrong. If you do, I'll give you my bacon. (laughs) I don't throw that word out. So the fact that I just said that means, oh boy, whatever's coming next might be pretty important. So let me tell you what it is. It's not just an inspiring story. You're a Jesus follower, what David did. This is required of you and I. Let me tell you why. A thousand years later in the city of Jerusalem, which is only about 20 miles away from Hebron where David made the covenant with with the tribes. In the city of Jerusalem, David's there. I mean, Jesus is there. And he's going to model the kind of greatness that we're talking about here that David displayed. The kind of greatness that God requires of us. And he's going to do it in an unusual way. And there's going to be this twist in the story. And Jesus gathered his disciples. And they're in the upper, what we call the upper room. It's just a special room where he's going to celebrate the last meal that he ever has with them. And it's a meal that's called the Passover meal. And Jesus knows that just in just a few hours, he's going to be arrested, tried, beaten, and then crucified. And like David, Jesus knows he's been anointed by God. But he also knows that people haven't recognized him. He knows he's going to inaugurate a new covenant. It's not going to be between God and the 12 tribes of Israel. It's going to be a brand new covenant. In fact, it's called the new covenant. It's why we have our Bibles. It's why we have what we call the New Testament. This is like based on what Jesus does here in this upper room, this new covenant. And it's a new covenant, not between God and the tribes of Israel, but between God and all of mankind. And not through the blood of an animal, but through his own blood. You and I already know what the story is that he goes to the cross, and that's what the covenant is. But let's look at the story. If you can turn there real quick, I forgot to mention it to you. John chapter 13, John 13. Turn or flip on your phones real quickly. John 13, and it says this. I want you to say this with me. Jesus knew that the Father had put, and I'm going to give you a second. John chapter 13, verse 3. Actually, maybe it's up there. Oh, perfect. John chapter 13, verse 3. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put what? Let's say the two words together. Had put what? Had put all things under his, what's the word? Under his power. God put all things, everything under Jesus' power. Jesus, no, Jesus has all the power. And in this moment, Jesus, who has all the power, all the authority, he's holding all the cards. He is like the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and he knows all things are under his authority. He has the, the power. And the Bible tells us in light of that, being in that moment, just like David, when he came before the people and David had a decision to make, do I cut off all their heads? What do I do? David made the covenant. What did Jesus do? He says, I'm going to show you a new type of covenant. John 13, verse 4, so he got up he got up and the question is what do you do when you're king what do you do when you have all the authority what do you do when you're the most influential person in the room what do you do when the whole world is in your hands it says he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing he wrapped a towel around his waist and the disciples like whoa whoa, whoa. if he's doing what i think he's about to do no 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 peter's like you can't do this jesus you're our rabbi you're our teacher and jesus just smiled and ignored him look at verse four five he poured water into a basin and look what he did the one who has all authority, all power, 
he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. The one who had been given all authority over all things, all power over all things, he did the most humble thing you could possibly imagine doing. He did something that even servants weren't required to do. I imagine Jesus had a grin on his face. Nobody said a word. They didn't need to say anything. He just preached the most powerful message ever. But he did clarify. I don't think they missed it. I wonder if Jesus clarified for you and I. And in verse 14, Jesus says this, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example for you that you should do as I have done. Jesus said, if I'm not too good to wash feet, then you're not too good to wash feet. So I think Jesus has a message for you and I this morning. If you're a Jesus follower, if you're a Christian, He's letting us know through the story of David, through the story of Jesus, that in the moments when you come to the realization, when you're aware that you're somebody or you're something, you've been handed the keys, you've been shown the corner office, you have an opportunity maybe even of a lifetime. In David's case, the crown is put on your head. In that moment, what do you do? Jesus said very simple, you look to wash more feet. In that moment, you look to wash more feet. Because perhaps the thing that shows our maturity more than anything else is what we do with our power, our influence, and our authority. How we respond when it dawns upon us that we're the most powerful person in the room, the most influential person in the room, the most popular person in the room, whether the locker room, the classroom, the boardroom, the living room, any room. Now, I don't want you to miss it. Lest you think, oh, that's not me. Just for clarity, you've been handed the keys already. You've already been handled the keys. What, what are you talking about, Pastor? No, you've already been handed the keys. You already have a title. You already have a title. Title's father, mother, husband, wife, son, daughter, older brother, older sister, manager, owner captain of your team, like I mentioned, big brother, big sister, president, board member, scheduler, admin assistant. You can go on and on. You already have a title. And so you have authority and power and influence in some capacity. And so God is inviting each and every one of us to embrace the greatness that David learned that our Lord and Savior Jesus modeled for us that when you are that person in the room, you just use that. You leverage that. You steward that. Power, authority, influence, popularity, whatever it is. You use it for the benefit of others. You use it for the benefit of others. It's what David learned in the desert. It's what Jesus modeled for us. And it's what Jesus requires of us. Because Jesus did say, no servant, that's us, is greater than the master. That's what the master did. So I want to encourage you, look for ways to leverage it. Le ways to leverage your position, your power, your title, your influence, your authority. Whatever you are, look for ways to wash more feet. 
with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'm going to ask you right now to take one moment and say, God, show me right now where you want me to leverage my position, my title, my power, my authority. Show me, God, right now in this moment where you want me to wash more feet. This is you and God right now. Where does God want you to do that?